coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. I've gotten a whipping where someone threw a shoe at me. I've gotten hit with the broomstick. And that was the culture, not that, and they loved me. I always tried to teach them that you're not just raising a child physically, you're actually creating a self-image. Helping people understand some of the factors and some of the things that go into parents having a difficult time and then uh, taking it out on the kids, quite frankly. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, Even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just come to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And we just say thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. God, thank you for second chances. And we just pray for those who are going through trials and tribulations at this time. And we just love you. In Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen. 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 Dearly Father, we just uh, lift up this time with Dr. Kenny and, uh, quite frankly, the ministry that he started 45 years ago that ended up being Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina. Lord, uh, we thank you for the gifts that you've given this man and the abilities he has to pull people together and put together an organization that is helping hundreds of thousands of youth over the years. Amen. Amen. You know, Bill, it's interesting. I'm excited about our guest today. And I was thinking the other day, my wife used to tell me all the time that I wake up crazy. And let me explain what that means. (laughs) She says, you know, you have to be careful when she wakes me up because I wake up startled. And we were talking about it. And then we were at at my sister's house and my brother-in-law, they were talking and he said something similar. My wife said, wait a minute, what'd you say? And he was saying how my sister would wake up startled. And we always knew that my mother, if she's sleeping and there's a loud noise in the house, she would wake up startled. So we started thinking, we said, I remember when we were a kid, when we lived in this neighborhood, a rough neighborhood, poor neighborhood, and people would climb through the windows at night and try to break into the house. And I remember my mother, single mom, divorced single mom, had a pistol and she would shoot down the halls and we would all wake up, you know, and it it dawned on me that my mother wakes up startled. Even to this day, you have to be careful. I wake up startled, getting better. And my sister does it. And it's like, that's post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That yeah. stuff happened. And you don't even know 
that here I am, a 63-year-old, slim and trim, good-looking black man, still waking up like, oh, and my wife's like, what's, what's wrong, you know? But I guess that stuff never, ever goes away. Yeah, your body. Probably yeah. not, and I think that's uh, that's the key to one of the uh, issues that we deal with with uh, trying to deal with, with child abuse is the fact that so many children grow up in uh, multi-generational uh, circumstances i mean it passes from generation to generation where they think that being abused and being treated in in ways that we would consider abusive is actually normal and um, that's one of the reasons that is so difficult to deal with because so many of our politicians and other people who are in positions of power tend to think that uh, nobody has a right to tell anybody how to raise their children and yet they may be raising their children in abusive ways well, Bill, I just heard the voice of wisdom. Bill, please introduce the voice of wisdom to our audience, please. Be happy to. The voice you just heard is Dr. Ronald or Ron Kinney and uh, a little background on him. You know, if you go to his LinkedIn page, I love I love his description. You know what his description is, Odell? Good looking black man. No, completely retired and no longer looking for connections <laughs> or opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like it too. But he was an owner and president of Pharmaceutical Medicine Associates, which was uh, established in direct virtual teams to support selected drug development. He was a consultant with that. He was VP Worldwide Pediatric Drug Development, VP of Medical Regulatory. But the thing that we're going to talk to him about is Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina. He started that organization 45 years ago. 45 years ago? Pippen? Yeah. How old is he now? Uh, he's 46. Okay. All right. All right. Just wanted to make sure. I'm just checking. <laughs> I just turned 81 last week. There you go. There you go. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going we're gonna to ask him some questions and let him talk about what he's done. And But we're going to talk about trauma and resiliency and uh, how trauma can affect somebody like you, Odell, that wakes up startled. Right. So let's go ahead and begin the show. Uh, Dr. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Bill, Bill and Dr. Ron, wakes up startled and have a pistol under his bed, just like my mom. I'm just like my mom. I'm a shooting granny. She was a shooting mom. I'm a shooting uh, grandfather. Yeah. Hey, there you go. Is it loaded or you have one bullet? No, it's loaded. I got a clip. I got a couple <laughs> clips now. Okay. If anybody's thinking of breaking into Odell's house, you're going to be, it'll be a big bang theory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, doctor, you know, I think one of the questions I have, Odell was talking earlier about uh, his trauma and things, but I think yeah. I'd like to step back a minute. And you told a compelling story at our last board meeting. By the way, I'm on the board of directors of Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina, and uh, we had our board meeting this past week, and uh, well, it was last week. It was last week, yeah. And Dr. Ron came and shared some of the history that he has related to starting this organization 45 years ago, and some of the trials and tribulations that you go through with an organization, nonprofit, you know, funding people and all that kind of stuff. So, Dr. Ron, let's talk about. How did you decide to do this? Okay, well, let me back up a little bit to even prior to uh, starting the organization that became Prevent Child Abuse in North Carolina. When I was in medical school at the University of Missouri in 1966, I was on my pediatric rotation. And when you're on a pediatric clinical rotation or any of the clinical rotations, the, the students get the 
patients who are admitted through the emergency room and we have to basically work them up and uh, explain to the rest of the group of students that are in our rotation what the patient is all about and what the history and the physical examination and all those things are so that you can then discuss among the group what's going on. And as a pediatric third-year resident, I mean, third-year student in uh, medical school, uh, one of my early admissions was a seven-year-old child, a little girl, whose uh, father, who was a minister down in the Ozarks, and uh, decided that he was uh, obligated to beat the devil out of this child because she was a willful child, as he put it. And um, he had caused severe head injury in the child, and so she was in a coma when she came in and we took her to the operating room and the neurosurgeons operated on her head, whereupon she rapidly bled out and died on the operating table. Wow. So that was a very sad story. But um, also as, as uh, being a medical student, what we were compelled to do was to study everything we could about that particular patient. So we could explain to the group and to our attending physician, who was the instructor, what we were thinking and what we were recommending doing about that child or that that patient and what i found when i went to the literature to find out what was known about child abuse and uh, intentional injury of children by parents was that there was a whole lot known and reported in the literature that was not being practiced and was not even being taught so at that point in time i decided that uh, somebody needed to do something about that so i decided that from that point forward if i was going to be a responsible pediatrician or responsible physician, I was going to take some responsibility for helping uh, organize activities to help prevent those kinds of injuries. And that led me to, through a series of uh, activities, because I was a medical student, I was going on to become a resident in pediatrics at the University of uh, Michigan, and where I had helped organize a child abuse prevention group. And then I went from there back to St. Louis, Missouri, where I did my infectious disease training and subspecialty pediatric infectious disease training, and where where I also formed a uh, kind of a volunteer group of people within the uh, Children's Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, to respond to cases of child abuse because it takes a multi-specialty effort to respond to all the issues that are relating to a family that uh, has a abuse as, as a part of its uh, normal behavior. And I went from there to uh, San Antonio, Texas, where I spent two years in the U.S. Army as an Army medical corpsman and uh, organized an activity down there to bring all the resources of the community to bear on the problem that we were beginning to see in the emergency room in in, uh, Brooke Army Medical Center. Because one night, a a small child, a three-year-old, came into the emergency room with multiple injuries and was seen by the uh, emergency room physicians and treated for the injuries, but sent back home without any any additional care for the whole problem that was going on in that family, the dynamics of that, that family. The next day, the child was killed by her parents. And the chief of police called me and started raking the U.S. Army over the coals for not doing its job the night before. And uh, so I just challenged him to say, maybe the, the two of us are in agreement on a number of these points. Why don't we get together and talk about how we can solve this problem? And that led to the formation of the Bear County uh, Child Abuse Prevention Group, which uh, continues to this day to operate in uh, various parts uh, in, in San Antonio and Bear County, which is the county San Antonio's in. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, then, then I came, I went back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I began uh, doing antiviral chemotherapy research. In that uh, capacity, I was also involved in helping organize community activities around child abuse prevention. And then I was recruited to come down here. Well, no, I went from there to back to where I was teaching in medical school, teaching pediatrics in uh, Southern Illinois University Medical School, where I also organized a community-based child abuse prevention group. And uh, then I was recruited to come down here to North Carolina and run the Burroughs Welcome Clinical Research Program for antiviral chemotherapy. And that's when I wanted also to be a uh, have an appointment with the University of North Carolina School of Medicine Department of Pediatrics so I could stay in touch with some regular medicine, you know, some real medicine, some hands-on medicine. And that led me to doing uh, pediatric teaching down at uh, Wake Medical Center in Raleigh, because that's where the the Area Health Education Center was, one of the teaching units for University of North Carolina School of Medicine back in 1977. And uh, I made the mistake of asking the chief of pediatrics there, Mike Durfee, who was in charge of child abuse around there, what were they doing, and how could I be involved? And he said, uh, you want a job? <laughs> I found out. I found out at that point that there was a state-wide group that was just beginning to finish the job. It was a three-year demonstration program that they were doing to elevate the child abuse awareness around the state, and they had established uh, something like 50 different groups in, in the various counties around over the state, or maybe maybe as many as 100. I think there was one in each county, so that would be 100. Anyway, um, that put me in touch with the Department of Health and Human Services, where they were bringing this to a conclusion, but also wanting to continue because they had already developed the infrastructure and they wanted to see if they could make it into a a lasting activity. And that's when I got involved and uh, we decided that we would go ahead and and form a uh, statewide child abuse prevention program. We we started with the name SCANPAC, Suspected Child Abuse and Neglect Prevention Advocacy Committee, I mean, uh, awareness campaign, which is what it was called during its demonstration period. And we decided to keep the name for name recognition purposes and then change, but change the words to suspected child abuse and aware and neglect public awareness campaign. And that, uh, put us in touch with the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse up in Chicago at a time when they were just beginning to form state chapters to help uh, get their national program for child abuse prevention off the ground. That's what led us to uh, becoming a state chapter, a national committee for prevention of child abuse. And that uh, evolved over the years into what is now the Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina. Wow. That's quite a history. That is quite a history. You know, at the board meeting uh, was brought up about the laws for child abuse. There weren't a lot of them on the books. And talk about that, you know, the animals had more rights than a child. Can you talk a little bit about that? The first first case of child abuse to come up in uh, the United States, I believe it was up in in New York, was in, uh, I think it was 1888. It was a young girl who had been severely abused by her parents. And uh, the attorneys or somebody decided they were going to advocate for her and discovered that there were no laws on the books to protect children. So they pursued the prosecution of the parents under laws that were on the books for prevention of cruelty to animals. And it was, and they got a conviction and it was after that that they began putting uh, laws on the books that would uh, 
would help protect children from that kind of parental abuse or, or uh, non-accidental injury. Wow. Wow. What do you think of that, Odell? Then, then it was not until, that was in, I think it was, I think it was 1788. Might have been 1888, but I'm getting my dates wrong. That might be a century off. Anyway, it was not until 1962 that uh, Ray Helfer and Henry Kemp out at the University of Colorado decided that there was enough going on uh, around the problems of child abuse and child maltreatment that they did a survey of, um, I think, about 50 or so prosecuting attorneys around over the United States, and they published their findings in uh, in pediatrics, the journal, uh, one of the main journals of pediatrics. And that kind of opened the door to uh, open and causes a lot of scales to fall from people's eyes when they began to realize how widespread the problem was. And it was not until about 1968 or so that the various states began passing state laws that required reporting of child abuse and uh, in, and maltreatment and non-accidental injury. Yes, and, and as we learned more about child abuse, we realized that that was the end result of trauma and all kinds of other things. And so what Prevent Child Abuse is trying to do is get upstream from all this and yeah. before it happens, help the families, help the parents understand that uh, some of the factors that go into developing trauma and how to make uh, the children and the parents trauma resistant, resilient, I should say. Odell? Well, you know, it's interesting because, and I think Dr. Keene was stating earlier, it's based on, in some cases, some cultures are a little more tolerant than others. And when you start talking about poverty and you talk about foster care or law enforcement, trauma, you know, in different cultures, whether it's black, whether it's white, whether it's uh, in the mountains or, you know, people bring their history with them. Yeah. And those are the things, because when you start talking about abuse and neglect, you could be vague because I grew up, doctor, I get my behind cut. I've gotten my behind beat with a, a belt yeah. I've gotten a whipping with an extension cord. I've gotten a whipping where they send you outside to get a switch. I've gotten a whipping where someone threw a shoe at me. I've gotten hit with the broomstick. And that was the culture, not that. And they love me. I know they love me, yeah. but that's just a different culture. I think you're pointing out a very important uh, thing because uh, what we've learned over the years is that uh, most of the, most parents who seriously injure their children and, and, and commit uh, acts that uh, would be considered abusive acts are not people who want to do those sorts of things. It's because they've grown up in a culture where that's what they've learned and that's what they've learned is the normal way to respond to children. And that's why one of our main programs in Prevent Child Abuse in North Carolina is to uh, try to teach parents alternative ways of relating to children so that they become more healthy families and they become more positive families towards uh, rearing children that are, are contributing children in the future and not children who are so damaged that they end up uh, having to be locked up for uh, committing crimes down the line. Exactly. Exactly. So, so Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina and it's their sister organizations around the country are in the education uh, right. arena, helping people understand some of the factors and some of the things that go into parents having a difficult time and then uh, taking it out on the kids, quite frankly. 
you know, when there's stress in the family because of money or food or shelter, any number of things. Somebody's an alcoholic. Uh, I mean, there's just all kinds of pressures in some of the lower income, but not necessarily lower income. Uh, Upper income people have it too. So it doesn't rest in one demographic. It's uh, it's across the board. That's right. One of the things I always maintained when I was trying to teach uh, people about child abuse prevention was the fact that all of us are potentially capable of becoming child abusers because none of us are well enough equipped in our in our society and in our cultures to not react whenever we're pushed too far. And um, for some parents, uh, the parents who have been raised in situations where the normal reaction to them was to beat them or, or treat them uh, in ways that we would consider abusive is that they think that that's the normal way to treat a child and that they should, uh, that they, they're being irresponsible if they don't. And let me give you an example of something that's not necessarily child abuse, but something that I have uh, some relatives that uh, when I used to go over the house, they would have a German shepherd and that German shepherd, and I'm, I'm, I like dogs. I, I got, I've always had dogs, but this dog just would intimidate me. He'd come over and growl and, mm. you know, like you were going to be bit. So you're, you're constantly alert. And I think probably animals sense that, but I went to visit some of his grandkids, and uh, guess what they had? A mean German Shepherd. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, how did that happen? That It passed down through all yeah. – each. in fact, my cousin had it, uh, one, and I was like, holy cow. You know, So they grew up saying, this is a good thing, this is appropriate to have a dog that would intimidate people. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but never give any other thought about the victim who I was. And I'll tell you one of the things, the way I kept that dog happy, Odell, what? when I ate at their house, I didn't eat any food. All my food was going to his mouth. <laughs> I was good. I was feeding him everything I had because I want to keep right. that puppy happy. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think to a certain point, Bill, and listen, I didn't graduate from anybody's medical school, but the, appeasing the bully. If the yeah. dog was the bully, appease the bully. If the bully has said, give me your lunch money, appease the bully, what does one do to prevent or try to prevent ourselves from being abused? You know, we will go to the Bible. The Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child. And one of the things on this abuse situation, and I want to kind of turn it for another perspective, because a lot of times we look at abuse from poverty, poor single mom, you know, stressed out, shaking the baby, shaking baby syndrome. We remember that was a big thing years ago. But how about the abuse and this is may not be physical, but mental and emotional abuse of the child that we want him or her to have great grades so they could get accepted into Harvard, Yale or one of the Ivy schools because we want to live vicariously through our children. Because a lot of times as adults, we didn't, you know, everybody, believe it or not, Doc, every black person didn't grow up to be the good looking slim and trim black guy on the podcast. So I understand that that sometime the bar is just too high. I get yeah. that. But at the end of the day, for those of us or people who may feel that they didn't reach their potential or they didn't have opportunities, they could have reached it, but they didn't have opportunities to go to college because the family didn't have money or something happened to family. You had to leave college to go work or you had to do this or you had to do that. Now, all of a sudden, we want our children 
to do and go and be what we couldn't be or didn't be. And we push them and we shove them and we may push them verbally with our words because I've learned that words are powerful. Yeah. Words are powerful. Can you help us unpack some of that, Doc? Well, that's a uh, that's a difficult one to overcome because uh, I think we are constantly trying to uh, encourage our children and to be better than we were or to be as good as we were or to be whatever standards we think would be more acceptable to them. But I think that uh, I always tried to teach people, teach parents when I was a practicing pediatrician, I always tried to teach them that you're not just raising a child physically, you're actually creating a self-image. Wow. So, so wow. focus on really trying to help the child who's under your care become the best person they can you have to give them a lot of freedom to uh, explore and and be the best they can be yeah and you know you're right doc because you know i learned from my mistakes yeah and uh, you know and Bill, you made a mistake just one this year so far okay i thought you were perfect <laughs> i mean you're my perfect guy I'm, I'm sorry you just threw me over you you almost gave me ptsd bill i mean you know make you shake again the uh hey you know, it's but, you know, it's it's interesting because in scouting, we encourage kids to do stuff on their own and yeah. we, we encourage them not necessarily to make mistakes, but to help each other realize that how do you hold a knife so you don't hurt yourself? Mm -hmm. Now, not everybody believes that. And guess what happens? They get cut and they won't do it again. But we try and teach people. And once you start teaching kids and they see that you're really trying to help them not be hurt by a knife by passing it in the right way. They realize, okay, what else can you teach me how to build a fire properly? So it doesn't spread when you cook in a can of beans on the, in the fire pit, you better open it a little bit before you put the whole can of beans in there. Cause the doggone thing is going to explode and you're with beanie and weenies all over everybody. Yeah, and right. yeah. And you know, that happens. I mean, kids don't realize that you got to put, you got to put a little hole in there to let the yeah. pressure out. And uh, so these are these are things that, uh, you know, we have to give our children and our children's children the ability to make mistakes. Now, does that go beyond children? Does it go into adults? I think it probably does. I think that uh, we're all learning all of our lives. And if we don't have the opportunity to fail, we're not learning as much as we might have otherwise. Yeah. Now, you're 81, did you say? Yep. Have you made any failures this year? <laughs> I'm not sure I have this year because I I, I try my, I try not to do anything any more than I have to do. <laughs> That's one nice thing about being retired. You don't really have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I understand. The uh, Odell? Yeah, Doc, you know, how does one deal with the realities of facts? Because right now we used to say that people are homeless. Now they say, no, no, Odell, don't say that. They're not homeless. Call them the unhoused. Mm. I'm like, what? They said, no, no, they're not homeless. They're unhoused. I think yeah. in our race to be politically correct, we miss the point in some things. And the point I'm saying here is, or what I'm trying to get to, is when you look at the word trauma, what does trauma really mean? Because trauma is one of those words that's like, you know, you're in the ER, you're in the emergency room. It's a lot going on. And I was I used to be a chaplain 
in one of the local hospitals here. And the whole idea of a family member saying, okay, honey, I'm running out to get a loaf of bread. And two or three hours later, I'm in the room with this family at the hospital, that room that families gather in the emergency room on the side. And I'm the chaplain, but I can't pronounce death. So we wait for a doctor to come in and the doctor comes in and tells the family, I'm so sorry, your loved one who three hours ago was running to get a loaf of bread is no longer here. He didn't make it. And then usually not always, but 90 percent of the time that doctor will turn around and walk out of the room. And I'm sitting there with the white lab coat on with the word chaplain right there. And you're sitting there and families, I've seen family box holes in the walls. I've seen families fall apart. So that whole thing on trauma is real. So it's not like we can shield ourselves from trauma, correct? Or if the child's sitting there and the child's a child, but they don't know, but they see the reaction of mom, uh, the uncle, everything else. So we can't shield ourselves. We can't protect ourselves from trauma. But how do we process it, sir? Well, the trauma is a very general term, too. I mean, it can be, it has such a wide range of applications. I, th- I thought that was kind of the direction you were moving in, was talking about how trauma can mean one thing to one person and something quite different to some someone else. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, because I grew up in a neighborhood where gunshots were normal. And I know that sounds silly, but gunshots, gunshots were normal. Yeah. And see, when I was growing up as a a kid out in the Missouri Ozarks, to hear a gunshot meant that somebody was uh, out hunting. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, we had uh, at our Boy Scout camp, we have guns that, you know, 22s and handguns and shotguns. And we take, you know, do rifle range and we have a rifle merit badge, a shotgun merit badge. So we took some kids from the inner city out there and took them to the shooting range. Black kids? Yeah, about, about 50-50, yeah. Okay, yeah, in, yeah. in the city? In the city, yeah. And I asked them, what would you think? And they said, "This they don't sound like the guns in my neighborhood. Mm. The use of trauma when it comes to child abuse is, uh, you know, trauma-informed uh, therapy and stuff like that is a very different application of the word trauma than the kind of trauma of someone who's involved with it in a shooting or a car accident or something like that. That's why it's such a broad ranging subject. Um, but uh, trauma, trauma can be anything from just hurting somebody's feelings to, you know, the kind of trauma that results in death. Wow. Mm. Now, trauma-informed, you brought that up. I'm involved with trauma-informed task force that Chief Justice yeah. Paul Newby put together to teach the courts to be trauma informed and they've got a bench card that the judges use how to ask the questions in a, in a way and how to dialogue with someone that uh, may have gone through trauma in their life and now are in a courtroom and getting sentenced hmm. and you know it's, it's some people think oh it's just being soft on these people or it's you know something like that but it's not it's understanding where they're coming from yep. what they've been through and doesn't change the sentence but it helps them understand why is this person in front of you on a regular basis? What yeah. caused this? And what really prompted it was a district attorney down in Wilmington, a guy by the name of Ben David, and a judge, juvenile judge. And they became good friends. And they noticed there was a pattern of the people that kept coming in. It was the father and then the kids and then the grandkids and on and on. And so they started asking, what's going on that's causing this? What's yeah. what's generating this continuation in this mm-hmm. revolving door. 
and they weren't learned about adverse childhood experiences and adverse community experiences. And they said, okay, how do we address those and make people resilient to them? And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, doctor. Well, I think that trauma-informed even goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about my own experience of getting started in this uh, direction. And that was with the uh, the three-year-old child that showed up in the emergency room in San Antonio at the Brook Army Medical Center. She was severely injured, but the physician who was taking care of her was only concerned with taking care of the acute injuries and making sure that she was healthy enough to be sent back home. He was not aware of the, or, or thinking about the issues of of the underlying trauma that might have been the result might have been what caused her initial injuries and all that sort of thing so he sent her back into a situation where the trauma was repeated to the point that she was she came back to the hospital dead on arrival the next day so trauma informed simply means being aware of the fact that whatever you're looking at might be the result of something that you would not ordinarily think about on your own if you're depending on what your orientation and your focus is. If your focus is to stitch up a cut, then you may not think about how that cut got there wow. and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way of thinking that helps people to figure out what's going on overall. Mm. Yes. You know, it's like uh, an emergency room. You see the same child keep coming in for bruises. Yeah. You start saying, well, they can't be falling down that much. Something's going on here. Yeah. There are a few... Uh, uh, syndromes that cause uh, easily broken bones and things like that. They're sometimes mistaken for uh, non-accidental injury, but uh, those are usually pretty easy to sort out and are much more rare than the more common forms of injury that come in because uh, somebody's just not uh, doing a good job of parenting. Mm-hmm. Well, but but Doc, Bill Odell, yeah. how does one fight through the secrecy, the protectionism that the family itself has in place because let's just say the adult in the family, whether he or she is the abuser or not, but yeah. they're enabling the abuser, protecting the abusers. Like, well, if you tell them what happens, then they'll take you away. The threat of foster care or law enforcement is going to take you away. And I think as a child, how does a child process all that? Because all a child knows is this is my mother, my father or whomever. And that's some powerful stuff, you know, and I'm not talking about sexual abuse or anything like that because I'm not an expert in that field. But what I am saying is that I could see a child wanting to please his or her mother or father, even though it's an abusive situation. Right. I think that's that's where it comes back to the having people seeing those families who are trauma informed. They're trained with uh, with trauma informed types of uh, information so that they know how to approach the situation in such a way that it's non-threatening. My own approach to that when I was dealing with cases of child abuse firsthand was to say to the parents, when I would see a patient in the emergency room or be called to an emergency room in order to render an opinion on whether something was non-accidental or not, if I came to the same conclusion that, yeah, there's, there's something going on here, I would simply say to the parent or parents, if they happen to both be in the room at the time, so I, I would not address the issue of the injury or the damage to the child. I would say something to the parent like, things must not be going very well for you here. I wonder if you want to talk about that. And I found that when you focused on the parents and the issues that they were having to deal with on a daily basis and the stresses 
they were having to deal with and the stresses they were living under, things suddenly changed to a much more cooperative and um, participatory form of behavior on the part of the parents. They wanted to be involved once you focused on them and, and made it clear to them that you were trying to figure out how best to help them. Well, you know, how do you feel, sir? You yeah. you started this. Bill stated that you came to one of the board meetings of Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina. Yeah. You're dealing with the Healthy Family Fund. How does it feel to know that you're retired now? And this work that you put so much energy in to see it still going and helping so many families, how does that feel to you, sir? Well, it's disappointing because you you would hope that after this many years, there would be the solution would be the the problem would have been solved by now. But um, David Gill, way back about 1960, uh, wrote a book in which he pointed out that the only way we're ever going to solve the problems of child abuse and child maltreatment and family dysfunction was to change our culture. And I don't think that's happened. And I think that's one of the big problems that uh, continue to cause this problem to persist is the fact that our culture simply is not designed in such a way that uh, that we're very forgiving of, of people and very uh, helpful in solving problems of this nature. We, we prefer to take a, a punitive or, or an angry approach to trying to solve a problem, and that usually doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, you know, our podcast name is Finding Common Ground, and uh, yeah. that's what you're implying, that uh, people have to be forgiving, be understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to say try and walk in the person's shoes, but I kind of look at, you know, view it yeah, through their lens. Anytime I hear of a murder or something taking place uh, where somebody shoots or kills somebody in cold blood, like uh, happens so frequently these days, I, I, my first reaction is to wonder what in the world happened to that person who pulled that traitor to cause them to be so angry at society. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if you look at uh, adverse childhood experiences, the 10 questions, you know, Justice Newby took a look at uh, his inmates and he found about 97% of them had adverse childhood experiences and weren't made resilient. I suspect all these mass shooters also have probably six or more adverse childhood experiences. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. yeah, way back uh, at the beginning when, when the... Uh... Prevent Child Abuse uh, America got started. It was called the National Committee for Child Abuse at that time. Donna Stone uh, was a woman who decided she was going to put some of her personal wealth uh, into trying to solve this problem on a national basis. And she hooked up with the um, Ad Council to do an ad for trying to get awareness out there for child abuse just the awareness part. She teamed up with a group from the state prison of uh, Kansas and because they they came to her or came to someone with a proposal that since everybody on death row in the state prison of Kansas State Prison was a person who had been abused as a child themselves, and they were hoping they could do something that would help put a stop to it. Well, you know, I I came from the Boy Scouts, and we just went through a terrible situation where we had child abuse done in the fifties, sixties, and seventies, mm. and. uh we thought we might have 10,000, you know, we had millions and millions of scouts go through. I think like 50 million people went through scouting during well, those times. But one of the things that we did is we we started publicizing, if you've been abused as a scout, please contact these numbers. 80,000 people showed wow. up. Now, not all of them are legitimate, but 80,000 people, you know, even if you cut it in half, 40,000 people, 
Well, I've met a couple of the people that were abused and yeah. uh, they've become resilient to it, but it, it has affected them. Some of them are scouts now that they they called me and I didn't know anything about it. And, and it's got to be a difficult thing to talk about, whether it's sexual or physical or emotional yeah. or verbal. It's got to be a difficult thing to say, you know, the people I think I love are uh, messing me up. Yeah. Or, or the right. people who respect who I think I respected. I'm sorry, Doc, you were getting ready to say something. No, I was just agreeing. Okay. Let me ask a question, Bill, because you've had two very successful conferences, one in Greensboro and the other one in Raleigh. Raleigh. Where's the next one? And what's the future plans? Because we need this program like nobody's business. Well, we started, uh, Doc, we started a Youth Resilience Summit. And uh, it came out of Atlanta's Youth Protection Seminar, their scout office. And we we were going to do youth protection until I met Sharon and uh, Kelly Graves. And they, they explained to me about ACEs and making kids resilient. And once I heard that, we changed it to Youth Resilience Summit. And we bring people in to talk about ACEs, making kids resilient, uh, how to identify them. And it's pretty much free for it's a it's a three quarters of a day. And, uh, you know, we'll get between Zoom and in person four to five hundred people. Yeah. So we did one in Greensboro. We did one in Raleigh in November. Next one is next August in uh, Wilmington. And there's going to be one in Cleveland, Ohio, April 19th as well. And then there's a version of it in Cincinnati. And I'm going to be going down to Dallas to see the chief scout executive. We have a new one. And he's a businessman. So I'm going to talk to him about our youth protection program is pretty stout and, and it's it's really done a good job. But I, I'd like to add a component to it that talks about adverse childhood experiences, how to identify, you know, you get a kid in your troop and they're acting out, mm-hmm. you're going, why are they acting so much different than these other kids? And if you don't know about ACEs, you wouldn't even think about it. You just say, oh, he's just spoiled or he needs, you know, he needs more discipline or he needs yeah. to be kicked out or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I was a church youth group leader for 16 years. No one taught me about ACEs. Right. I didn't know anything about it. And I had some kids that acted out. And uh, so it would have been good to understand that and maybe even give the kids a test, 10-question test, to understand where they're at. So I think there's a lot of ground that we can turn over and a lot of work yet to be done. These summits, uh, we're going to uh, also work with the court systems in North Carolina and do a training for ACEs and form courts, not only for the judges, but for the clerks, for the administrators, probably for the officers, that are, anybody that's in a courtroom, to help them understand adverse childhood experiences and how to deal with it. You know, I, there's a story that uh, one of the nurses that was on the task force with us, and she was at Wake Forest, and she she talks about during COVID, uh, there was a very bad car accident. They brought in the, the wife in, and she was in bad shape. And she was in the emergency room and her husband came, obviously, and he was wanting to go sit with her and be with her. And uh, they wouldn't let him in because of COVID. And yeah. he had to wear a mask and he had to have his temperature taken before they'd let him in. And he refused the temperature. The mask was okay. You no, know, you know, you have those temperatures now that are the infrared and they put them on your forehead. Yeah. Well, he refused to do that. He And, it, and lady, uh, this nurse could hear it escalating in the hallway and the security came, the police came and she, you know, she just said, this is, this is going to be a bad situation. The wife is screaming for him. 
I mean, just think of all that tension. Yeah. So yeah. she had been taught about ACEs. So she went down and talked to the man. First, she talked to the police officer. Says, let me just get a little space here. And let me take him in a room and talk to him. So they said, okay, but you're not going by yourself. He's pretty violent. And so they sent in a non-police officer with her. And she calmed him down and said, just tell me why you don't want to get your temperature taken. And he said, well, it took him a while to admit this. When he was a young boy, his dad used to take his handgun out and point it at his head and pull the trigger. And that traumatized him so much that when they put the thermometer up there, it brought back that trauma. So they found a one that goes in your mouth, the old fashioned class ones, took him a while. And uh, he did that and he was fine and he went in. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an important lesson. You, You just have to learn how to listen and you have to learn how to pay attention to what the patient or the client is is telling you. Exactly. Well, you know, just imagine the law enforcement officer. I'm piggybacking on this case, Bill, the law enforcement officer who may or may not have been an ex-military person, may or may not have just gotten back from Iraq. And now this person is traumatized, experienced things in his or her life, along with the person who they're trying to calm down. And to Doc's point is punitive, meaning that we have a culture where oh, we'll make you behave. We'll show you what we're going to do. We're going to put you down and we're going to let you know that we are the law. And we're the force. And I listen, I'm 100 percent into law enforcement. I don't believe in this defund law enforcement, none of that kind of stuff. But what I do say is to the point of it'd be nice if it was more communication and a better understanding of where the officer is coming from. And where the individual is coming from, because a lot of times the officer finds us in a state. And what I mean by that, we're not in our best selves. We're going through something or something's acting up. And all of a sudden we walk in on the scene and we have no idea how we got to where we are. But it's the officer's responsibility to bring security, calmness, normality to the situation. And I'm just in a state. And I might not be talking right. I might not be hearing instructions. I might not be doing a lot of things. And sometimes by not complying can escalate the situation. And Bill, you hear the term a lot, de-escalation. But if I ask the question, what does de-escalation mean as it relates to what we're talking about here on, you know, ACEs and everything else? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Doctor, we're getting near the end of our time. Would you like to do anything closing comment? I think that Odell is making a a very good point, and that is the fact that uh, we approach situations uh, from our own base of assumptions based on our own past experiences, and sometimes we get it wrong. Amen. Amen. You know, I do think we need to talk about someone who wants to contribute to your foundation, your family fund. Can you give us the website for that? Oh, wow. We've got it. Go ahead, Odell. Well, the, the name is the Healthy Family Fund, correct? Yeah, Healthy Family Fund. Uh, and it's it's set up to uh, provide uh, money for um, prevent child abuse in North Carolina to be able to use in whatever ways they think would best apply to uh, the needs of the families that they're involved with. How long has this fund been going to? Who started it? I started it, and I started about uh, 
Well, I think I started just before the pandemic because we were going to have a big fundraising effort. Uh, and then the pandemic came along and kind of knocked us off of our plans. Yeah, I did that to a lot of things. Yeah, so it's kind of been uh, dragging along somewhat. And we're hoping to uh, launch a new program in the near future. Very good. Very good. You know, what we ought to do at the uh, our summits, we ought to make sure that there's a uh, table set up for this so that we can dialogue. I know... Uh, Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina always has a table, and Sharon's usually, last time she was co-chair for it, and she spoke at our first one, and she spoke at this last one. So we've uh, tapped into her talent and and a lot of her staff. Her staff, a number of her staff have been on the podcast talking about Prevent Child Abuse. So, folks, if you want to make a contribution, go to the Odell Family Fund. Yes. .org. Yes. Yes. If you do, it's the... North Carolina Community Foundation. You could do it that way too. 3737 Glenwood Avenue, Suite 460, Raleigh, North Carolina. And of course, always Dr. Kenny's fun. So get in touch with us, the Ronald E. Kenny Medical Healthy Family Fund, and just make a donation and we could go from there. So the good thing is you're just trying to help people in any way, shape, and form because a lot of people need help. We all need help. And I think that's going to be a big deal. And also you can find them on Facebook also. So doctor, it has been great talking to you. I still get up sometimes with my wife. If I hear a loud noise, I jump up. Oh, what's that? What's that? What's that? But at the end of the day, we're working our way through it because a lot of times the way one grows up, we don't always have control over what happens as a kid. And, you know, you do the best you can. You do the best you can. And those negative things, you try not to repeat them and pass them on to your children. And those positive things, you try to be the best you can be going forward. But I just give myself room to say, Odell, you're not perfect and not blaming my parents or anything like that on something that I think, in my opinion, that should or shouldn't have happened. Because if that's the case, I'm still upset that I didn't get a G.I. Joe or a Rock'em Sock'em robot for Christmas, you know? So I'm still my Rock'em Sock'em robot for Christmas, Bill. So, Bill, you going to get me a Rock'em Sock'em robot for Christmas? Yeah, I got two of them. I don't know. Maybe I got yours. Doctor, it's been a joy. I I did enjoy meeting you briefly at the board meeting. I look forward to developing a friendship and a relationship as we go forward, even though your LinkedIn page so you're not doing that anymore. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. I I really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you too. Okay. You have a good holiday. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.
Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. 